Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode 16, The Murder of Brooke Wilberger. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. Today's episode, episode 16, we're going to be talking about the disappearance and murder of Brooke Wilberger. Now, I decided to do this case because last week's episode, episode 15, was the disappearance of Katherine Eggleston. A suspect in her case is actually the man who is responsible for the murder of Brooke Wilberger, which we will get into later. So the cases may or may not be related, but this is definitely an interesting case that does need attention. So that's why I chose it. My only announcement is please rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps the show out, and it helps others find us. Thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate each and every one of you. All right, so let's just get right into this case. Brooke Wilberger was born in Fresno, California on February 20th, 1985. Her parents were Greg and Cammie Wilberger. She had three sisters and two brothers. So quite a big family. She was a devout member of the Mormon church and really took her faith seriously. After she graduated high school, she went on to study at Brigham Young University in Utah. And for those of you who don't know anything about this school, it's a private university and it's actually owned by the Mormon church. From all accounts, Brooke was a well-liked student She seemed to be kind to others and popular also. She had a boyfriend. His name was Justin Blake at the time of her disappearance, and he was actually serving on his Mormon missionary trip in Venezuela. One friend would describe her as, quote, someone who was always willing to help, end quote. Another person described her as, quote, just the warmest, kindest person, end quote. Brooke was 19 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was back home on summer vacation from school, and she was visiting one of her sisters in Oregon. On the morning of May 24, 2004, Brooke was last seen cleaning lamp post in the parking lot of the Oak Park Apartments. Her sister and brother-in-law managed these apartments, so she was helping them out. And they were on the edge of the Oregon State University campus. She was last seen in the morning of that day. And then her sister went to look for her because she hadn't seen her in a while. And she looked around and could not find Brooke, but she did find her flip-flops. And immediately her family knew something was definitely off. It actually looked like a sign of abduction. Because why else would her shoes go missing? She wouldn't just leave them there. She immediately reported this to the police. And they actually took this case really seriously from the start. They knew that this was not a runaway case because Brooke had no prior history of running away. She was a really good kid and acted responsible all of her life. 
she wouldn't just go away without telling anyone anything. And the fact that her shoes were missing just proved more of that. This case also got a ton of media coverage right away. Because, of course, a young girl goes missing. The media is all over it. Immediately, search teams began to look all over for her. They looked in nearby lakes, backwoods, roads, everywhere. There were hundreds of volunteers looking for her. The town was pretty quiet, so this seemed to really bring everyone together. And of course, they were scared for their own well-being also. Police did their work and checked out everyone around her. They could not find any suspects, and they even checked out her boyfriend, who, like I said before, was in Venezuela doing missionary work. So he was quickly ruled out, and he had nothing to do with this either. Early on, there was a person of interest, and this person's name was Soon Koo Kim. Sorry if I mispronounced that. He was a person of interest right away. He was later cleared as a suspect, but he did receive an 11-year prison sentence for unrelated counts, and they were burglary and theft of a woman's personal property. And these were crimes he committed while he was being investigated for Brooks' disappearance. And he was released in 2012 after serving seven years. On November 30th, 2004, a University of New Mexico foreign exchange student was beaten and raped, but escaped her attack and identified Joel Patrick Courtney as her attacker. He pleaded guilty to this attack, and it called for a prison sentence of up to 18 years plus another 5 to 10 years on parole. On May 31st, 2005, Police seek information from the public about a green 1997 Dodge Caravan that may be connected to the case. They were able to put everything together and confirmed the arrest of Joel Patrick Courtney for the aggravated murder of Brooke Wilberger on August 2nd, 2005. In May of 2006, Brooke's parents, Cammie and Greg Wilberger, filed a complaint against the Creative Building Maintenance. This is where Joel Courtney had worked and hired him. They said that he failed to complete a background check on him and also failed to supervise his activities. However, the company was found to not be held liable for the harm caused by Courtney's actions. Court documents showed that Courtney was in the area where Brooke disappeared and he was driving that green van and was spotted by several people who could identify him from a photo lineup. Wilberger's DNA was found inside the van and so was some of her hair. Courtney was extradited to Benton County, Oregon on April 8, 2008. He faced 14 counts, including aggravated murder, two counts of kidnapping, and counts of rape, sodomy, and sexual abuse in connection with Brooks' disappearance. 
At this time, there was still no body found, but prosecutors would still try to seek the death penalty for the case. And it's also noted here that the FBI did consider Courtney a suspect in other disappearances, but they have eliminated him from two of those cases, but not from episode 15 of the podcast, which is the disappearance of Catherine Eggleston. His trial was set for February 1st, 2010. However, on September 21st, 2009, Courtney pleaded guilty to aggravated murder. And this was to avoid the death penalty. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He made this deal to save himself from the death penalty. And he said he would provide information about the location of Brooke's body. And the deal also said he would be imprisoned in New Mexico, where he was from, instead of Oregon, where he committed the crime. I don't know why, but it did. On that date, September 21st, 2009, Brooke's mother actually said that she was grateful to Joel Courtney because he finally told the authorities where they could find her body and she could have some kind of closure, which is very brave of her. She actually said during the news conference, quote, We just want to strengthen our family and go on with our life, end quote. This was also the first time the Benton County authorities would describe what happened to Brooke on that day she disappeared, back on May 24th, 2004. And it's pretty rough. I'm just going to provide a trigger warning for this. It does involve murder and sexual assault. Joel Courtney said that he abducted Brooke at knife point from where she was working at the apartment complex after he saw her. After doing that, he would bind her in duct tape in his van, the green Dodge Caravan. He drove her into the woods and kept her overnight and then raped her. And then he bludgeoned her to death. Authorities said that Courtney hadn't decided to kill her until he saw how hard she fought against being raped. He then hid her body so it would probably not be found. He said he was surprised that she fought so hard, so that's why he decided to kill her. He also stated that this was the third woman that day he had attempted to abduct, which is really so disturbing. He tried to abduct two Oregon State University students, but they were somehow able to get away. Later on, it was revealed that her remains were concealed in the woods of an abandoned logging road located near the Oregon Coast Range. So he did tell them where her remains could be found. Now, Joel Courtney was certainly no model prisoner. In one instance, he had to wear a stun belt in court in Benton County because he threw a fax machine at a psychiatrist in the jail. And around that time, 
authorities were thinking about ending the plea deal, but Cammy Wilberger, Brooks' mother, spoke with the deputy governor and explained just how important it was for them to have Brooks' body. That way they could lay her to rest in a proper way and have that closure, which is so brave of her. This family really is amazing. Their forgiveness for this man is truly incredible and also really inspiring at the same time. They didn't demand the death penalty, and they also didn't mind where Courtney served his sentence. The district attorney at the time was so impressed with how Cammie addressed the media during that news conference on September 21st, 2009. Cammie Wilberger said that their faith had helped them avoid self-destruction. And some stuff that she said in her press conferences, quote, that's one thing that has given us peace. We don't feel anger or hate. We couldn't change what happened. All we can do is move forward ahead and look for the good things that are around you and bring grateful for the people that are helping you, end quote. It's really remarkable. What's also really remarkable is that the Wilbergers still keep in touch with the investigators and prosecutors who worked on the case. They're so close that sometimes they attend their retirement parties and send email messages to each other. Cammie said in an article in 2011, quote, We feel a great love for those people that helped us and were so kind to us for the whole ordeal, end quote. That's really amazing that they feel this way because I know in a lot of other cases, there's some hard feelings towards the prosecutors and people working on the case from the family members. And I guess every situation is different, but it's really nice that this did work out the way it did. And the family also said that Brooke was not a member of this community. She was just visiting her sister and brother-in-law and was doing some work for them while she was on her summer break from Brigham Young University in Utah. So it's really nice that the community was able to come together for this girl who wasn't a part of the community, but it's so nice that they did. All the volunteers that helped with looking for her and the investigators that helped, it was really great. The police chief, who was captain at the time, John Sassaman, said in the 2011 article, quote, It was an overwhelming case, and it affected the entire community. End quote. The investigators put in thousands of hours of overtime and worked very hard to solve this case. It's definitely something that no one will ever forget in that town. Like I said earlier, this case drew a lot of national attention. There was national media attention. There were billboards, public awareness campaigns. And of course, there were a lot of tips that came in. There were about 4,500 tips. And that's as much as any case in the history of Oregon at the time had. And of course, they had to investigate every single one of those tips in order to help solve the case. So that must have taken a lot of work from the investigators. 
And since this was a nationally televised event, there were all this media that this town was not prepared for. And it was just a frenzy of vans, cameras, reporters, all that. But they had to work around it somehow. And that's what they did. And they were very professional. Joel Courtney waived his rights to legal appeals when he entered the plea agreement. And any discretionary appeals, like questioning his defense team's work, are very unlikely. Unless some kind of new evidence comes out, which probably won't happen. To this day, Joel Courtney remains imprisoned at the medium security Central New Mexico Correctional Facility at Los Lunas, where he will spend the rest of his life. So unlike some other cases, this one is closed. And I just wanted to end with a quote from Cami Wilberger in the article from 2011 that she did. She said, quote, Through these last 10 years, I watched her good friends graduate from college, get married, and have their own families now. While it's bittersweet for me, I'm so happy for them. It's like, oh, that would be Brooke. I just remember her as an integral part of our family. Very sweet and very kind. End quote. She would also say, quote, Hopefully we're better people. You would never choose to go back through a difficult time like that. But we did learn much about ourselves, and hopefully we emerged as better people, kinder and more loving through it all. End quote. Wow, that's so remarkable and inspirational at the same time for someone that's gone through so much tragedy and so much pain to come out and take positive things from all that evil. It's truly remarkable and amazing at the same time. While this case was very sad, there were some good things that came from it. And it's closed now, which is good. And the family taking positives from it is also very beautiful. I hope you enjoyed episode 16 of True Crime Works, The Disappearance of Brooke Wilberger. As always, if you could, please take a minute to rate, subscribe, and review. It really helps us out. And if you could, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. That really helps us out. If you want to send me a message about an idea for an upcoming case, you can do that on Instagram. I'm at True Crime Works, and you'll see the logo. Or you could always email me, truecrimeworks at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to talking to you next week.